Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Dr. M's Women and Children First podcast. I'm your host, Dr. M, and this is episode number six. And today we're going to be speaking with integrative medicine specialist, Dr. David Rakel. We're going to take a tour into the world of the mind and the body and stress and how stress affects us. As always, this podcast is dedicated to the health and well-being of mothers and their children. Specifically, we are going to look at antecedent risk factors and triggers that could affect the pre-pregnancy state, the pregnancy state, the perinatal period around delivery, and as well the entire period of time a child is alive. We're going to dissect the science and see where we can affect change for the better for the child. But first, let me introduce you to Dr. David Rakel. Dr. Rakel is a nationally recognized leader in integrative medicine. He is the chair of the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health. He is an expert in mind-body stress and human health. Dr. Rakel obtained his undergraduate degree from the Colorado College and graduated from Baylor College of Medicine in 1991. During his time at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, he founded the Integrative Medicine Program, now known as the Integrative Health Program, and received the Gold Foundation's Leonard Toe Humanism in Medicine Award, the school's highest honor for excellence and compassion and care. His team worked with more than 50 clinical systems within the Veterans Health Administration to implement changes to make care more personalized, proactive, and patient-driven. He is an author of both academic and popular writings. Dr. Rakel says one of his missions is to communicate medical information in a way that is accessible to people of all backgrounds. He has published 11 books, including the textbook of family medicine, current therapy, and integrative medicine, as well as peer-reviewed research on the impact of measures such as mindfulness meditation and the power of the therapeutic encounter. He serves as Editor-in-Chief of Practice Update, a website devoted to commentaries on primary medical research. His 2018 book, The Compassionate Connection, focuses on how relationship building can influence health outcomes. Today, he and I are going to take a deep look at stress and how stress can affect a mother and a child. And ultimately, does that have an outcome risk factor? Does that change what could possibly happen to us as humans. So with no further ado, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. David Rakel. Good morning, Dave. Welcome to Dr. M's Women and Children First podcast. I'm so excited to have you on the show today and welcome from beautiful Wisconsin. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. It's always great to be here with you. All right, so I want to dive into our subject matter today. We're going to be talking about mental stress and specifically from the framework of the mother-child mind, and you are the expert in this field. So I'm going to start with a little, little just something I wrote to lay the framework for what we're going to get into. So for a mother to be, how was it really meant to be? Humans were designed to be excellent at handling acute stress with multiple redundant metabolic and neurologic pathways that support our ability to deal with stress and survive. Chronic stress, on the other hand, was never expected to be a part of our day-to-day -day existence. We metaphorically run from the panther and survive the event or we die. Being unable to flee the panther is to be chronically engaged in fight or flight or death. 
I believe personally, after doing a bunch of these podcasts and living uh, in medicine for 22 years, that chronic mental stress is the greatest disruptor of the human balance and human health. To truly know this fact and to work towards alleviating it is the immediate route to a healthy life and a healthy pregnancy in my mind. Mental stress has profound negative effects on human and hormonal immune and hormonal function to the detriment of mom and her baby. Chronic mental stress is known to disrupt pregnancy, conception, and perinatal events. For me, perception of one's stress is often more important than the event itself at times. I know that's a hard thing to say, but I think our perception of our reality makes a big difference of how we deal with any event as it occurs. Becoming aware of our perceptions and working toward a minimally stressed mind is a key to a healthy pregnancy. And I firmly believe that women should be honored and protected while pregnant to keep external stresses low. And we should provide that support system. So Dave, with that background and that framework, give us an overview of, of stress and its effects on human physiology and, and mothers specifically, and, and you can, and children will follow that as well from the fight or flight perspective. So I'm gonna leave you with that beginning. Yeah, well, uh, thanks for that beautiful introduction uh, and understanding of the complexity of that. <laughs> but there's <laughs> one word, uh, that really resonates with me and, and what really drives the ship, and that's perception. You know, the, uh, you know, if I took this pen in my hand, one person could perceive that as, ah, beauty. I, I associate that with poetry and bringing out uh, the joy and the love that uh, is interconnected between all things. Or the other person might see that as, as stressful as, you know, once they received a, a letter written with that pen that changed their life for the worst. So that perception is related to the context of that human being and how they perceive. So we can't just assume that they perceive things as we do, right? And, and we, we have such a problem in medicine that, that, that we believe what you need what I know <laughs> yeah. without first going into the context of someone's life. So you can't change perception until you've deeply listened uh, and developed the context. And then, so as clinicians, we need to first listen and then use our expertise in service of that person's best outcome because the patient's or the mom's or the baby's perception is so key that, that, changing that perception from one of a positive perception versus one of, of fight or flight really changes so much pathophysiology, so many neurochemicals. It all starts with that perception. And isn't that beautiful that a perception, a non-physical thing gets transmitted through your eyesight, through your experience into a physical chemical? And uh, we can talk more in the future about um, quantum mechanics, right? Uh, yeah, oh yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that talks about this. So physics, this is in the science of physics of how important that perception is. But I'll pause there, but there's so many directions we could go. Well, let's start right there. So I, I love where you went with it. So clearly perception is the key and perception brings for me to mind visual, right? It's not just visual. Perception can be an energy, a feeling, uh, uh, the, 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 the hair sticking up on your, the back of your neck, but let's take the visual. You know, Huberman's been doing some work, Dr. Huberman, where, you know, he's talking about how the eyes see, you know, that panther's in the room, he's staring at me. And so what do your eyes do? The eyes are actually a projection of your brain. So they're completely connected. The eyes immediately focus, you lose peripheral vision, you are intently designed to see that creature 
which then triggers all the physical chemicals immediately, adrenaline, norepinephrine, cortisol, which are sending the signals to the body. Okay, blood to the uh, muscles, blood to the brain, you know, uh, increased glucose, increased mobilization of, of, of chemicals to help us get away. And then we survive and we downregulate all that. So when we see this perception issue and we visualize our stress, if that stress is chronic and always in the room, ooh, we have a problem, right? Yeah, it, it wears you out. Um, so, so, you know, this kind of goes into polyvagal theory a little bit, but you have the fight or flight, you have the, the relaxation response, uh, and you have the freeze response, right? So if, if chronic stress uh, gets so severe, the body shuts down, and, and that's the extreme. And, and once the body goes into this freeze, think of catatonic depression as an example that, right. that I'm under so much stress, I just can't deal anymore. So my nervous system just shuts down. When we get to that state, you know, there's a lot of in-betweens. <laughs> right. And, and if we don't just deal with uh, getting people out of that state, they'll never be able to get to a point of forgiveness or those more complex human choices uh, that lead to health. So once someone gets to that freezing or that inability to, to even cope, we just have to start there. And uh, so that's the extreme. But so many other people are, are in that place of potential. Um, and that's where we have the opportunity. But it's important to realize that this can go from a fight or flight to freeze. And uh, and if that fight or flight gets turned on so much, our adrenals start to wear out and then our cortisol gets depleted and the DHEA goes up and all these hormone interactions start to get to this imbalance. And a lot of people would say, okay, you got to get your DHEA level right. I would say, no, you got to get your perception right. Because if you can get your perception right, then the body heals itself. And that's what we want. We want health with less things. Yeah, and, and your point being exactly right there. So you fix the DHEA, but you're not fixing the head headwater problem, right? So yeah. if we're sitting there, we're kicking our wall 20 times and my toe starts to hurt, the answer is not to put a medicine on to fix the toe pain. The answer is to stop kicking the wall, which segues perfectly into the work you do around compassion, around how we are supposed to be approaching our patients. And I could tell you when I did my medical training in at UVA and Emory, I came out hardcore allopathic. You got a broken foot as well. You got to put a pain medicine on it. Right. And then 2006, I'm enlightened to the reality that no, there's a better way to do this. Let's go upstream. Let's go a lot farther upstream, right? Where is it really starting? So when I think of mothers and I think of, you know, like you're saying, the DHEA is out of whack, the cortisol is out of whack. Now we're gaining weight because we have dysfunctional metabolics because of the stress. We're talking about dealing with a two-hour oral glucose tolerance test and then gestational diabetes with metformin. But what's the real problem? <laughs> Why is mom stressed to begin with? Why can't we go talk to her there? That's right. right. So what do you think about the world of what we should be doing with mothers or what can mothers do at home regarding these things? Yeah, well, let me go back a little bit because um, really what you have defined beautifully, Chris, is our dysfunctional healthcare system. <laughs> yeah. And, and, the, and the expectations we've created for patients. So, you know, imagine uh, I'm, a, I'm a fatigued human being 
and I want to go to the doctor and find out what's going on. And I get my adrenals checked and uh, eventually I get the diagnosis adrenal fatigue and the uh, find it, fix it reductionistic model says you need uh, to get your DHEA under and I give you all these supplements. Uh, that fits the accepted culture. It also fits the ego. The ego never wants to take responsibility. <laughs> we yeah. always want to take the simple XYZ linear path, but right. health is, is never linear. Health is complex. And, and so we need to shift the culture to explore exactly what you're talking about. What is it that I can do to influence my perception of my world so I can really get at the root? Because the answer isn't adrenal fatigue. Maybe that helps us get to a better place, but the answer is to go more upstream into those really Con those those determinants of health are, are more within our consciousness and that takes time it's messy uh the the financial model of medicine doesn't reward it uh so right. we're kind of going against um a dysfunctional culture and i haven't gotten fired for this yet you know i'm in an <laughs> academic institution but we have the most expensive least effective most harmful healthcare system on the planet and it's in part because we think that there's a pill for every ill and it's just not that easy. Yeah. And I think, you know, if anything's defined that right now, I think COVID's defined that better than anything because here we are 96% of all deaths are based on lifestyle choices, yet not a single media outlet covers this. So yeah. I, I'm going to segue back for, to that. I think you, I've heard you say this before, which I think is absolutely beautifully painful. How do we turn towards suffering? You know, that that's the key. And I think with my teenagers, when I see them and they come in and they're struggling, the first thing I'm trying to do is is go after why are you here? But more importantly, what's eating at you and how do we help move you towards learning from that instead of running away from it? Because mm -hmm. running away from it to me, I think sort of like anxiety flying an airplane. If you never fly again, then you're going to fear it even more each time. So how do you teach people to turn towards suffering, which I know you, you do? Yeah, <laughs> right. Which would you rather, turn towards suffering or get a massage, right? <laughs> yeah. Everybody, everybody's going to pick the massage, but it's really, uh, we need to sit um, with suffering. And, and uh, there's a Sanskrit word, Narayan, that simply means to sit together. And, yeah. and how we do that really matters. And, and this gets us, a little bit into the difference between empathy and compassion. And I don't want to get too politically correct here. You know, I live in Madison, the town of the perpetually offended because everybody's so politically correct. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I don't want you to overthink this, but but this does help me anyways. So this, this has helped me be more compassionate with sitting with suffering. Um, empathy, by definition, uh, is we listen we feel someone's pain. So it requires feeling someone's pain. So I internalize your pain. I feel it. Number two, uh, um, it requires action, which is different than sympathy. It requires me to do something about your suffering. And a sympathy just feels your pain and goes home, right? It doesn't involve action. So empathy, by definition, requires me to feel your pain and do something about it. But if you look at suffering, there's no fix for suffering. <laughs> there's rarely a fix. Fix it if you can, but there's rarely a fix for suffering. So uh, if you are doing empathy, 
you're asking for empathy fatigue. You're asking for empathy burnout because it also sees Dave and Chris as two separate people that were not interconnected, that I can fix Chris's suffering, which is a completely absurd expectation uh, in the reality of life. So don't do that to yourself. Don't think that you can fix someone's suffering. You can sit with it. And in sitting with it, we become interconnected. Chris and Dave realize that we are not Chris and Dave. And this sounds a little fluffy, but there's a lot of science behind it, that, that Dave and Chris are intimately interconnected. And when I sit with Chris's suffering, Chris sits with my suffering. And we recognize two people as, as living life together with no expectation of fixing. And the beauty of this is if you do that, uh, in a kind and supportive way where we realize that uh, I, we're sitting together. <laughs> I won't say suffering gets fixed, but it gets a lot better and a lot tolerable. And that's the difference between empathy and compassion is what you sit with your suffering teenager. And I've done this with three of mine. <laughs> and I always want to go into the fix it mode as a parent, right? Okay, yeah. you need to do this, this, and this. And sometimes they need to hear that. And sometimes they don't. Uh, but just sitting with kindness and understanding and compassion always works. And when your kids rebel, this has never failed me. Uh, when something is not going right, you need to give it your attention. You need to give it your presence. And every time my kids had rebelled, I just went and gave them my attention. I put work aside because that's not the most important thing in my life. The most important thing in my life are the people I love. So give them your attention, sit with their suffering, and that will never fail. So I think from the parents out there listening to this, that is probably the most important thing you're going to say this entire podcast, because I think as a mother, a father, we suffer a lot personally watching our kids suffer. And the act of being compassionate in their existence while they rebel, which they're supposed to do, mind you, right? They're supposed to push away to become independent creatures and souls. While we witness and, and offer compassion, it also, it also alleviates some of our own stress because we're not trying to fix it and therefore we're not failing when it doesn't succeed and then we're not stressed out that we're ineffective parents, right? Yeah. I think as a mother, especially a mother who's on her second, third kid, that stress level's constant. It's omnipresent with little junior running around tearing up the house, throwing the coffee beans up in the air when you tell them no. And so I think a lot of this is the news to use for parents, because we can talk hypothetically about everything, but the reality truly is that news to use is, hey, sit there and realize we're all imperfect creatures and be okay with that and be yeah. okay with your kids stub knee. I mean, I see way too many children these days, way too many mothers these days who are in effect trying to make everything better. And that's not really what needs to be. Our kids are supposed to stub their knees, get up crying, and then learn from it because that's the growth that nature has provided for us. You know, the God's put the system out here for us to be learners, right? The parent's job is to prevent Junior from dying. You know, Junior, don't jump off the cliff. Yeah, that's important, right? Just like you said, you know, we need to be there at some times, but I think we're too much involved with our kids and are too much involved as parents in, in things and too much involved, like you said, what's the most important thing to be witness with your kids? And so I, I think 
you know, that's critical. So every parent listening right now, that is, that is, that's it right there. Love your kids, spend time with them, give them hugs and expect less perfection. It's, it's really pretty simple, isn't it? I mean, it, it's, it, it it's does. Pretty, it sounds yeah. so insanely simple. <laughs> Which, yeah, uh, I, yeah. Yeah. I, I feel so imperfect at it myself all the time. I mean, even right now with my own two kids whom I love more than almost anything on this planet, I feel many days where I'm like, what am I doing here? Why can't I figure this out? And I think you're right. It's just more compassion, less fixing, which is, you know, yeah. being a healer, that's a hard sell, it, right? But it we're, is hard. And we've been so conditioned uh, to fixing. Um, and that, But that's the essence of mindfulness training, right? Yeah. People, uh, we have this... Un- inappropriate expectation that we want life to be blissful all the time but life would suck if it was blissful all the time because we wouldn't have the wisdom of dichotomy and mindfulness is being in the present moment with what is on purpose without judgment and with what is is suffering and with what is is joy and with what is is the mundane whatever it is it is in the present moment on purpose without judgment the hardest thing in midlife is judgment because if yeah. you look at, at the beginner's mind, that child that's born, everything is anew. They see things through the beginner's mind and they tilt their head and they say, huh, mom, I never thought of it that way. <laughs> and over time, they condition their mind to survival and that creates judgment. And eventually, I just my mom just passed away, as I told you, and, and I got to sit with her in her last few days of life. And she was so joyful and she would go around the room and I said, mom, I love you. And, and she said, and there would be five people in the room and she'd look at me and she said, I love you. And then for each person in the room, she would say, I love you too. I love you too. <laughs> and I love you too. And her critical mind went away and she was so peaceful. Why do we, why is it so far, so hard for us to get out of that critical prejudgment uh, uh, that's been conditioned into our survival, which touches to that fight or flight response. I'm not sure if it's even possible, but it's beauty when we see the glimpse of the child's eye, the beginner's mind, and it's beauty when we see that wisdom of that person just before death to see what's most important in their lives. Yeah, and I think the other way we learn that is through animals. I think dogs yeah. are another way for us to see right. that non-judgmental unconditional love that and why do i why does everyone want a pet pets are exponentially growing in ownership well there's not an excuse i mean they, i mean it's not a mistake this is truly a response to the levels of stress we're all undergoing and not coping with well and animals provide that unconditional love that we're not really good at giving and i think again more news to use for the parents here is, is, is give that unconditional love, but also give yourself unconditional love. I think that's the other one. We haven't touched on that yet, but self-love, like how few people give themselves self-love and instead are band-aiding their holes with food, sex, drugs, whatever that is. We need to look in the mirror and accept our imperfections and be self-love creatures. I think animals are the way to teach that. Yeah, and and and, and the, the dog, right? Look always looks at you with that tilted head of, huh? Yeah. Chris, I never thought of it that way. I mean, who doesn't, <laughs> who doesn't need that? I mean, that's just a beautiful, a beautiful thing. Um uh so yes, and and uh, there was a a thought I had, but it just left my mind. So it'll come back to me. Well, no worries. But I you know, I say 
every lecture, discussion, podcast I've had to this moment have all been about hard science realities of fixing X, Y, and Z. And, yeah. and the reason I saved yours for this position is because I truly think this is the most important discussion because this is the abject top of the pyramid headwaters of disease onset. Why are so many people disease prone post-divorce, post-major unexpected stressful event, right? Because our immune systems, our realities are somewhat dysfunctional for a period of time that sets us up for disease. So if we learn the things you're saying, compassion, I, I like stoic philosophy a lot. Yeah. Um, I, I, I do a lot of reading in the stoic world because again, it's about that. How do we perceive whatever event is coming at us, right? I can't change the weather, the, the job prospects, the outcomes of my kids, but boy, I can certainly change my perception of my negativity towards them. That's right. And that reminds me of what I wanted to focus on. You talked about the self-love and how, how challenging that is. I, I, I want to share a study that was done at Kaiser Permanente, um, where all they did in their primary care clinics was include an adverse childhood experience questionnaire, which I think is 10 or 12 questions on, did you as a child experience, experience an adverse childhood of experience, um, an ACE? Uh, yeah. And um, if all they did was answer yes to one of those 10 or 12 questions, the only intervention was compassionate inquiry. The clinician would say, ah, I'm sorry you had to go through that. How can I, as your, as your clinician, help you through it? That was it. And then they looked at their total use of the healthcare system. And those who answered positive to an adverse childhood experience had a 30% reduction in going to the doctor, which you could equate to healing. Right. If, if you don't need to go see a doctor for symptoms, that generally is a good thing. So when we talk about the importance of self-love, uh, a lot of it is put on our own shoulders. And, and this is why we talk a lot about the power of forgiveness is why should you do your do that to yourself? You know, if there is something that you did or you couldn't fix, you know, you, you can't do this for others until you do it for yourself. And I, I, I love the process of forgiveness because you can't forgive anybody until you forgive yourself. And Jack Cornfield said, forgiveness is giving up all hope of a better past. I love that. <laughs> you know, you can't go back in time. And why do you want to carry? Why do you want to do that to yourself? So you don't forgive for others, you forgive for yourself. So um why do you want to carry that around with you? And once you do that for yourself, then your perception changes. Then you start to see the good in people instead of the bad in people. And you're less likely to have road rage. And, you know, it's such a beautiful domino effect if you can first do this for yourselves. In medicine, it's the hardest thing for us because we were trained to do the put everybody first before ourselves. Right. But we really cannot. And, and I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on addressing burnout in, in your field. But uh, that's such a pandemic now, particularly with COVID. Yeah, you know, segueing into that reality, the burnout issue, I think, is completely in our face right now. I think we have gotten to the point with COVID stressing the system uh, volumetric patients' visits coupled to a system that asks you to spend an inordinate amount of time 
doing things that one have no benefit to the patient, i.e. EMR tracking, time spent on things that don't help the patient. And then, oh, by the way, you've got 40 people stacked up to be seen. It, it is really an impossibility. And so folks are quitting. And unfortunately, the brain drain tends to be on the higher end age, which is not what we need to be. You know, you think about the elders of any Native American tribe, they would honor the elders because they had the most wisdom and knowledge. And we're losing the most wisdom and knowledge in medicine because of this, this money-driven dysfunctional system that says you need to do X, Y, and Z. And that's not what most people signed up for. Mm-hmm. So I think burnout is real. And I think you're absolutely right. And I, I loathe the problem of burnout because there's no quick fix. It's going to take time to change the healthcare delivery model. And I know you've been intimately tied in trying to do this at many places, including the VA, but I, I, I still think we're going to struggle. But for me, I know every physician I see, I talk to them about perception, about how to understand that within the framework of today, it's take a deep breath before you walk into the room. It's maybe take five breaths if you need to, maybe take a five minute break if you need to, maybe, you know, look in the mirror and say a mantra of I love myself, I love my job, I love today. You know, I, you know, I think all of those things sound silly, but they have immense power. They do. And that, um, uh, boy, there's... That's what you just uh, said triggered um, the reality that we can just shift our perception. And this is shifting a culture and yeah. it, it's shifting how we see our kids. It's, it's, it's shifting how we see the world that uh, in health, healthcare, disease care, if, if you look at the pathogenesis model, pathos to suffer, the genesis, the creation of suffering. If we just focus on looking to see what is wrong with you, uh, we make more diagnoses in our culture. We, we get reimbursed more, the more complex the patient is, uh, but it gets us farther away from reality. So, and this is some of the work we did with the VA, is what if we took that same human being and shifted our perception of asking what's right with you or, or what's important to you or what do you want your health for? And we go into what's meaningful for you And then we start to perceive the same person, not as a list of problems or a list of diseases, but a list of potential, (laughs) a potential, because health is much more by far what you do than what you take by far. There's so much evidence to support that uh, healthy nutrition, stress management, good sleep, exercise, ideal weight, stress management. Those are the main predictors of health. Uh, if you have the social financial <laughs> potential yeah. for equity uh, in those realms. Uh, but we just shift the perception. And that's what we're trying to do in healthcare is get us out. And, and reimbursement models are following. Now with value-based care, we're going to start to get paid for keeping people healthy and out of the hospital. We're finally trying to figure out that you get what you pay for, right? So if if we keep paying for the find it, fix it throughput model of healthcare, it's going to continue in this dysfunctional way. But if we shift our culture to really see the beauty and the potential of healing based on what's important to that human being, that mother, that parent, that child, you know, think of if we did this in grade school and how that yeah. would influence uh, kids' health later in life. 
What a what a unique idea to pay people to keep people out of the hospital. I mean, it seems so hard to come to that reality. I mean, we should have had that from the get-go, but of course we do things backwards. You know, I, I've said this many times about our culture. You know, we we as Americans specifically are all incredibly blessed with what we have access to in this country. You know, yeah. we have problems, no doubt. As you said, we don't have equal access to things the way we should for every born child. We have um, some victimization mentality in, in a lot of different groups. Um, we feel marginalized at times, all of which need to be addressed. Um, but it really only takes a second to look around the world. Like you just look at Afghanistan right now and you say, boy, we really have it good. Um, at any level, we really have it good. And we need to focus on all the positives. You know, we have healthy children. We have beautiful experiential possibility. We have a country that is so diverse and so uh, topographically gorgeous and weather-wise and, and mm -hmm. access. I mean, getting out of nature is the one thing I do more often than anything because it reinforces in my mind how small I am and how great this gorgeous country is. And so if we spend more time outside, I think it would help us. And the number one thing I think parents should do, shut off the bloody news media. Just, yeah. just stop your connection to any access point of news media because it's mostly negative and mostly depriving you of your God-given right to be happy and just spend time hiking in the woods. <laughs> you just did it, Chris. You just shifted from seeing the world as a bad thing to a, a thing of beauty. What a beautiful <laughs> example. Uh, they interviewed, I don't know if it was Mozart or Beethoven. They said, where do you get the, the, the insight or the stimulus for all these beautiful tunes? And he said, ah, the challenge is getting out of bed and not stepping on them. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's, it is, it's all around us, this beautiful mystery. I, and when you were, were talking about, um, you know, rights and, and uh, uh, what people expect, I, it made me uh, think of uh, something one of my Native American mentors uh, uh, said when I was in, in New Mexico. And, and they talked about the difference between rights and obligations. And uh, when, uh, you know, the Europeans came in and, and uh, took, <laughs> this is sensitive, I know, but came to yeah. America and uh, uh, pe people kind of said, I have rights. You know, that culture said, I have rights. But the Native American culture said, I have obligations. I have obligations to the mother earth. I have obligations to this planet. I have obligations to this next generation. And just that shift in perception from uh, Dave has rights versus Dave has obligations uh, to my children, to this planet. And in order for me to be successful in achieving those obligations for others, I have to do it for myself. So that's another, maybe the second uh, mantra that I would encourage us to think about today is that you cannot uh, give to others love if you don't have love for yourself. And that's for sure. The, <laughs> it's hard for me to talk about love as a tenured faculty in a large <laughs> scientific yeah. institution, but it's really what it's all about. So we call it unconditional positive regard here. That's our scientific, <laughs> that's our, our scientific word for love but it's wow. really what it's all about.
some 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 future podcast we're going to sit down and talk about the quantum mechanics of what that really is doing inside the body because it is physiologically doing a lot and i know the headwaters is the key of this thing again if we change perception the perception changes mindset the mindset changes physiology the physiology changes the 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 chemistry of the system and the next thing you know the adrenal fatigue the other problems that you were going to pour medicines into no longer need any care because they're fixing themselves because our genes from the get-go were made for two reasons procreate and survive and they have zero desire to be dysfunctional. They only stay dysfunctional because we keep them dysfunctional. So I think you've nailed it on the head with this, with this discussion. It is what you're saying is the news to use to fix the body. It, it may take time, but it is the uh, route, right? Uh, I think you should stop the podcast right there. That was beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it, it, Dave, I'm, I'm dead serious, though. I, you, you are purposefully in this position because I think, I mean, with all of my heart, I think that the answer to human dysfunction is in the mind. And the rest of it just takes our time to heal. And you represent everything that medicine should be looking towards. A healer who says, what can I help you with regards your problems? Not how do I fix your problems? How do I sit with you? and help you move through your world, wherever that is, how to help you witness it. I think that you've said it all. And I'm only gonna ask you one more question because I don't. you're right, I don't know where to go from here. You have literally laid out without me prepping this exactly what I would have preconditioned this talk to look like. And I mean, it, again, I, but I knew this going in because you're brilliant. But that being said, I do ask all of my guests one question. I did not prep you for this, so I'm gonna do it in my typical way. If you had the ability to ask the federal government for one policy switch, you got a token and you gave that token and they had to do what you said. Mine would be change school food. I would make sure that every child in this country is fed high quality anti-inflammatory Mediterranean diet style nutrition. It would be cooked on premises and they would eat really well and that would fix one major problem. What would you say? You could give this token to President Biden today and you have the ability to change the narrative right away. What would you do? I love that question. I ask our medical students that all the time. Uh, oh, in you interviews. Yeah, for residency interviews, because uh, it, it gives me such insight. Um, I, so I've thought about this. And, you know, uh, I used to say everybody should have access to good health care. But access to our health care system only predicts about 5 to five to 10% uh, um, of health. Uh, so it's really not a strong predictor in the way it's currently formatted. Hopefully in the future, it'll be a much larger percentage. So when you look at what really influences health, I would agree with you that nutrition is key. Uh, and alongside of that is how do we get everybody the best education from uh, the earliest time in life possible where we have equity of knowledge? Because once someone is empowered with equity of knowledge, <laughs> then they can determine their own health. Uh, but it's, it's um, such an important uh, thing that we have an equity in education. You know, I mean, the, those with the most money can provide the best education to their children. So how do we create that equity for the best gift we can give each other, which is insightful knowledge? So you can follow your own purpose. Uh, you can find your own flow and build that because when you find your flow of what you want to do on this earth, only good comes from that. Even uh, 
So that's the other question I ask is, what would you do to my faculty? What would you do if I didn't pay you? <laughs> and if they can do that, and I can support them in that, only goodness is going to come down the road. Yeah, it's sort of funny. Um, I think about that, you know, even just doing this newsletter and this podcast, I ask for nothing in return and not because I need anything in return. It's because it is the most joyous experience to give back. You know, it's sort of funny. I've had people say, you know, you're crazy. Why are you doing this? And I'm like, because it's the most fun I have. I have so much enjoyment in doing this. I would prefer to keep doing this and not have to have a real job. But unfortunately, I need to pay some bills. So I do have a real job. But you're right. You're right on all counts, Dave. You are a blessing to this earth. And, you know, I tell you, buddy, I've learned from you over the years. And and it is um, just a joy to sit and talk to you for this past 45 minutes. And I am so grateful that I can share your wisdom with all the followers of this podcast and the mothers who are hopefully going to birth children in a much more um, relaxed, peaceful mindset, perception of their own reality, which then lets their children come out happier and healthier and epigenetically more grounded. And so <laughs> on that note, my friend, I'll give you the end of the statement. You get the last words and otherwise I'm just gonna say thank you for everything. Oh, no, uh, gratitude is my last word to you, Chris. And, and what a beautiful example of you following your flow, right? I mean, there's payment in other ways and you're, you're yeah. getting it in spades. So thank you for doing this. My friend, have a great day. All right, bye-bye. Well, there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. David Rakel. He is a fabulous human speaker just giver of knowledge and it was an absolute joy as you can tell for me to sit and talk to him and i hope that the information that came out of this will help you on your journey in this life to reduce stress understand perception and reality and just live the most authentic version of life that you can i was planning to spend a little time doing a little deeper dive into some more scientific side of this but i think at this point i'm just going to end it here because I think it's just so well done and powerful the way he spoke and finished. So at that, you know, from, from this perspective, I think it's ended. So have a great day. Hug those kids. Now for the begutory disclaimer. The information provided in this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or healthcare professional, and is not to be used to diagnose or treat any health condition or issue, and does not constitute the formation of a provider-patient relationship. Have a great day.